Hey, everyone. Um, I also have some concerns about the length of my sermon, so I'm going to go uh, as quickly as I can. It's a lot to cover. Um, but I felt like that whole chapter was important to read to kind of get the whole flow. And, um, you know, we're called here together to read the Word of God together. And I feel like that's more important. And if I can make my sermon shorter so we can read that whole chapter, then I'll do my best to try to make that happen. Um, and I just want to start with a word of prayer, and we will jump right into Daniel 1. Um, God, we just thank you for uh, this time together. And God, just be with us. Um, help us as we kick off this um, book of the Bible that is so just fascinating and insightful and gives us tons of wisdom, and that's something Daniel was known for, was for his wisdom, Lord, so we pray that um, that wisdom will soak into us um, this Sunday and in the upcoming weeks, uh, that we can live wise, obedient lives in the midst of our culture, our Babylon. Um, yeah, God, just be glorified today, continue to bring Jordan and the rest of the youth home safely, and uh, yeah, be with our church as we kick off um, just a new kind of chapter in our life together next week with Jordan and Amanda. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so yeah, as, as we said, it's, it's uh, cool to kind of be here both to kick off this book of Daniel, which I love, um, but also just kind of bookend um, this long season we've had without a lead pastor. So it's exciting that a new season is upon us. Um, Daniel's always been a book that I've liked, and I'm sure a lot of people, it's, it's like has so many of the top maybe, you know, 20 Bible stories that we, we hear and learn as kids. And Daniel has like two or three of them in a short little book. So it's a heavy hitter. Um, but then if you've read it recently as an adult, you'll find that it's, it's an interesting book, especially as you get into the last few chapters. It's, uh, it's, it's difficult. And as always, whenever we have difficult chapters like that, we give them to Nathan Lenstra to preach. <laughs> so he's tackling the hard ones in, in like next month. Um, so thank you, Nathan. Um, I have an easy one, and uh, pretty straightforward, but first I want to, yeah, list out. This is, one of the tricky things about having multiple people preach is I didn't, like, clear, this is what I think is kind of what the book of Daniel teaches us, <laughs> but, you know, Nathan or Jordan Lang or Jordan Chapel may disagree with me, but this is kind of three things. I don't think they would disagree with me. I think that these are, there's probably more than three. These are three I thought about. The book of Daniel, it shows us how to live as believers in an unbelieving culture, so it focuses on Daniel and his friends in Babylon and kind of how they interact in a culture that is not a God-following culture. Number two, it shows us that God is in control of the present and the future. Um, as we'll see, Daniel has a lot of prophecy in it. It has a lot of showing kind of what God's going to do in the future. And, and God's laying out promises for his people. And he's showing them that even though you're in a tough time, I am with you right now. I have a plan for you. And I'm going to still be with you into the future. And then number three, it shows us that God cares about individuals and their stories in the midst of tumultuous times. And this is what I find really interesting. And this is just God's character over and over and over again. During the book of Daniel, there's, there's these fascinating like world events going on. But God cares about the people. He cares about Daniel. He cares about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He even cares about Nebuchadnezzar. And the same is true today. We live in strange times with strange world events and God, it's not that he doesn't care about those events, but more than kingdoms and empires and countries, God cares about people. He cares about the people involved. And so in the book of Daniel, we see zoomed in on people. 
that God cares about. And the same is true today. So you can go to the next slide. I have three points that I'm going to try to go through this morning with you all. The first is God had a plan for his people. And this is like the people of Israel, the Israelites. Um, But it wasn't what they thought it was going to be, probably. Um, We'll talk about that first. Number two, God had a plan for Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, But it likely was not what they thought either. And then the third point is that God has a plan for us today but it may not be what we think. See, there's a theme there, if you follow that. Um, So I'm going to hit on the application on the third point, obviously, but as I'm going through the first couple points, just think about there's a lot of application in Daniel and in this chapter. There's a lot that's very relevant to us today. So even before I get to kind of the application at the end, be thinking through, like, how this is relevant to us today because it's kind of all throughout. Okay, point number one. Um, God has a plan for his people. I'm going to do a quick history, back, historical backdrop of the book of Daniel. Um, and hopefully I can kind of clear some of this for, do some service to everyone who's preaching after me so that they don't have to spend so much time on this. So I'm going to do a quick little historical backdrop to what's going on here. But first I'm going to zoom back up before the book of Daniel. Some of this may be, old news to all of you, but to me it's helpful to kind of think about what's, what's been going on, what is going on, what God's doing. So when God brings his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, he, um, there's judges, all that, and then, but then he builds a kingdom with David, well first Saul, but really David is the king who really builds the kingdom that, that God has. Um, so we have David, and then we have Solomon, and really Solomon is the peak of the kingdom of Israel. You can kick, click to that next slide. So pretty quickly, um, the, the kingdom kind of peaks with Solomon. After that, kind of bad stuff happens. And a lot of that, as we read the Old Testament, it's bad kings, it's bad rulers. They're not following after God. The people's heart are not following after God. The kingdom splits into two kingdoms, and things just kind of keep over a few hundred years. And, over, and there's a few good kings in there, but a lot of it's just bad kings doing evil stuff and... God shrinks their kingdom, and eventually God sends them into exile. But early on, it kind of peaks, and it starts waning away. And during that time, um, it's interesting that God kind of builds the kingdom when there's not really a lot of other powers going on. Um, But then slowly, some other big powers come onto the scene. So you can go to the next slide. The next big one is the Assyrian Empire. So if you guys remember, I preached a couple years ago in Isaiah and I think I showed the same slide. And we had the fun story of Sennacherib trying to siege the city of Jerusalem. This shows up um, in Second Kings, but also shows up in the book of Isaiah. And what's fascinating is the Assyrian Empire was massive and brutal. And they, at least in this part of the world, they probably had the biggest empire there ever was to date. So they were like the biggest empire there had ever been in this part of the world. And they conquered all this area in green, except for, and you may not be able to see, but Judah there is yellow. They conquered that whole area, but they never fully conquered Judah, um, even though they were a super powerful empire. And, and there's the stories in the book of the Bible about how they tried to come up to the gates of Jerusalem, and um, they pray, and God sends an angel that um, kind of wipes out the army, and they go back with their tail between their legs. Um, and they never fully conquer Judah. Now, 
I think during this time, the, the people and the kings of Judah maybe, maybe just thought like, oh, well, God's always going to do this. God, God's always going to have our back. He protected us from the Assyrians, and we don't have anything to worry about. And we kind of see a bit of that in 2 Kings 20, 14 through 19. Sorry, I did not mark all my verses I'm going to be reading, so just bear with me as I flip through to some of them. But in 2 Kings uh, 20, 14 to 19, we see a, a bit of this happening. This is right after kind of God delivers them from the Assyrians. And it says, Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, and th- some men just showed up. And King Hezekiah showed these men like, oh, this is my kingdom, and God just saved us from the Assyrians, and check this out. This is my, this is my uh, palace, and here's our temple, and here's all this stuff. Um, he's kind of showing off what they have. And Isaiah says, where do these men come from? What did they, and where did they, sorry, who did these men say they were, and where did they come from? Hezekiah replied, from a distant land that came from Babylon. The prophet asked, what do they see in your palace? Oh, I show them everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away. They will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is about 100 years before the book of Daniel. So this is kind of prophesying what's going to happen. Hezekiah replies, oh, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? <laughs> so talk about some hubris. He's thinking, well, things are good now. Like, who cares what happens 100 years from now? But at least there's peace in my time. And maybe he thought God will continue, like, you know, he, they, they kind of got comfortable that maybe God was always going to be there to, to save them, to get their backs. But that's not the case. Fast forward 100 years, and the Assyrian Empire gets taken over by the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And this sets the stage for the book of Daniel. And the Babylonian Empire does what the Assyrian Empire can, could not do, and it conquers Judah and Jerusalem. And it's a little bit confusing how this happens exactly, and if you kind of flip to a few chapters later in 2 Kings, you end up with kind of lots of kings kind of happen at the end here. But we have the three final kings of the kingdom of Judah, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Now, Daniel started off by saying that in the third year of Jehoiakim, he was the first one, um, Nebuchadnezzar carried away some, some of the, the choice people. Um, now, later we learn that that's kind of the first time that happens. So and it's a little bit confusing, the narrative. It's not fully fleshed out, even in the Bible, and you kind of, the history is not fully fleshed out. But it seems like sometime during Jehoiakim's reign, this first king, the Babylonians came and kind of, kind of conquered Jerusalem, but not really. But they kind of captured it and took some of the choice people. But they kind of left it alone otherwise. But then about 10 years later, they revolted. So they go back, they conquer it again, and they take more people. And then about 10 years later, they revolted again. This time they go back and they just raise it all to the ground. So about roughly 10 years apart, this happens in like three segments. So again, sorry. But to set the stage for the book of Daniel, this, they get taken in the very first wave. So this is the first wave of people that get pulled out of Jerusalem, which means they are the cream of the crop. 
the kings in, the, in this time would take the, the best people, the best and the brightest, and they would pull them away to serve them. And it would discourage the population too. Like, we just took your best and brightest. We took your, your best people, and what are you going to do about it? Nothing. And then 10, 10 years later, he takes, like, they try to revolt. She's like, fine, I'll take even more people. So he takes all the skilled tradespeople. He takes all of their blacksmiths and everything and just leaves the farmers and the poor people. And then 10 years later, they try to revolt again. So then they just, he's just like, whatever, I'm done with you guys. He raises it all to the ground. So this is a bit of the backdrop. Now, as the Babylonians are taking people into away from Jerusalem, away from Judah, and taking them captives and moving them to Babylon, they had a choice to make. These Jewish people are taken away from their temple, they're taken away from their cultural hub, they're taken away from their ways to do their religion, and they're moved to Babylon. And they had to decide, what, what are we going to do? Are we going to live as the Babylonians live, or are we going to be distinct? And there was different thoughts on this. And we actually see this show up in the book of Jeremiah. I'm going to flip to Jeremiah really quick. In Jeremiah 29, and actually right before that, in Jeremiah 28, Jeremiah has, he puts a yoke on his neck, and he's talking about, he's kind of prophesying, and then Hananiah breaks the yoke, and Hananiah says, no, this yoke's not true. God's going to destroy the Babylonian Empire, and he's going to save us within two years. And later on, God gives this word to Jeremiah. And he, he, tells, he tells him, Hananiah is a false prophet. That's not going to be the case. They're going to have to stay in Babylon for a while. So he tells Jeremiah, I want you to send this letter to the exiles in Babylon. And I'm going to read just a few verses here in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. She had all these other prophets telling the people of God, don't worry, you're only going to be in Babylon for a short while. Stay away. Like, stay separate. Don't integrate. Don't. Like, that city is evil. That king is evil. This whole empire is evil. God's going to save you, so just wait. And that seems like maybe something God would say. It seems like maybe there's a ring of truth to it. But yet, God tells Jeremiah, no, that's not it. <laughs> you guys are going to be there for a while. So pray for the city. Get involved. Be my light to it. And this is a tension that all of the exiles find themselves in and exactly the tension that Daniel and his friends find themselves in. And this is the tension that we see in the book of Daniel. So you can go to the next slide. God's plan for Daniel and his friends. And you can go past that too, I think, to the next one. Okay, so 
Daniel and his friends, and really all the exiles in Babylon, have three choices. And these three choices we have today. Assimilation, separation, and projection. Now, what I mean by those, assimilation, just, assim- just assimilate into the culture. Just become part of the culture. You're just going to look like a, the culture. You're just going to be like the culture. You're just going to do what the culture does. You're going to look no different. There's going to be no difference. And there was probably some Jewish people that did that in Babylon. They just kind of melted into the culture and didn't look much different. Choice number two is separation. Now, this is what the false prophets were telling him to do. You guys need to stay separate. Do not even think about integrating with those Babylonians. Those guys are terrible. Stay separate. Wait. Hunker down. God's going to bring us back to the promised land. Stay separate. Projection. This one's a little little different. I was thinking about this, but I think it's really important. Projection can kind of go either direction, but what I mean by projection is when we start making decisions projecting what we think God's going to do. So we think like, okay, well, I, God's probably, God maybe wants me to assimilate because he's probably going to use me to, you know, be a witness to this person. So I'm, I'm going to maybe do what this person does because God's going to use that in some way. Or I need to stay separate because God's going to use that in some way. So it's, it's kind of projecting what you think God's going to do, um, but you don't necessarily have a basis for it. You're just kind of projecting what you think God's going to do. I'll explain more about that later. Okay, so these are kind of the choices in front of Daniel and his friends. So let's zoom in more on Daniel chapter 1. Sorry, let me get back to my right chapter here. So this historical background is important because the person writing the book of Daniel would have known this. They would have expected their readers to know it, and so... It's, it's important for us to kind of have some, some knowledge of this as we look at it because it influences this whole story that we're about to read in, in, in the book of Daniel. So we have Daniel and his friends brought to Babylon, and it says that what they did was they brought the, the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to learn in the king's palace. So they were, like I said before, the best, the best and the brightest. Among those chosen were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, Hananiah is not the same Hananiah that was a false prophet in the book of um, Jeremiah. This is a different Hananiah. It must have been a popular name. Um, But these four, four men, these four boys, we don't know exactly how old, but probably young men. It says young men were brought here. Now they, if we just think about these, think about these guys for a minute, and I wish, I wish some, some of our youth was here um, because I feel like this is, this is very relevant to them, but you have these young men who had so much promise. They were top of their class in synagogue. They were brilliant, gifted, handsome even. Um, they were on the path to success. And I'm sure that their, their teachers and their parents and their community had plans for these boys. They were going to be the next religious leaders. They were going to be the next leaders in the government. They could have been the king's right-hand man. They were going to do good for their community. They could have used their talents and their wisdom and their gifts to better the kingdom of Judah. And I'm sure 
they had those plans. I'm sure their parents had those plans for them. And since a lot of the teens are not here, you parents, I know some of you have young, now young men, young women who are getting older, and you have plans for them. Um, or maybe not plans exactly, but you have wishes for them. You have goals for them. You have hopes for them that, that God's going to use them, use their giftings, use their wisdom, use their, you see this, this potential in them, and you think, man, I hope God does something great with them. I hope, I hope that they are able to, be, to, to, to go as far as they can. And I'm sure Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah's family and community had the same hopes for them. Now, I can imagine, I could probably bet, that their parents' plans for their children were not to be taken away to Babylon. That was not part of the plan. And I'm sure that after they're taken away, their parents are sitting there thinking, God, what on earth? That was not part of the plan. They had so much potential. They had so much giftings. They were going to be leaders in our community. They were going to be the next leader in our synagogue. That was the generation that was going to lead up our community. Why did you take them away from us? What, what good can they do in Babylon serving an evil king, an evil king? What on earth are you doing, God? But yet, this is what part of God's plan. He had a plan for Daniel and Mishael and Hananiah and Azariah that involved them being in Babylon. And so, to Babylon they go. Now, like I said, they're in Babylon and they have a choice in front of them. What are they going to do with what's expected of them? And we read that what's expected of them is three things, basically. Probably more than that, but at least three things. They're given new names, first off. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us, but these new names were a big deal because their names represented their God, represented their, and I looked this up and I can't remember, I forgot to write it down, but you know, most, all of their names had to do with attributes of Yahweh and of God and of their culture. They're given new names that represent the Babylonian gods and their culture. So that's more than just giving a new name. They're given new names that have new meanings to them, that try to redefine who these guys are to try to integrate them into the Babylonian culture. Number two, they're expected to learn for three years it says, the Babylonian language and literature. They're supposed to become learned Babylonians, to master the language, to master the literature. This is like college, basically. These young men are sent to Babylonian college, and they're told, you don't have a choice of what you're majoring in. You're majoring in our language and our culture and, and literature. Now, back then, the literature wasn't just like whatever. It wasn't like Shakespeare and stuff. There wasn't a lot of any fiction. Back then, writings had a point to them because writing was expensive and time-consuming and there wasn't a lot of people who could write and there was no printing press. So pretty much most stuff that was written down was religious in nature or government in, uh, stuff in nature or some history. Um, so when it says that they had to study literature, they had to study the Babylonian religion. They're reading their religious texts. They're reading their history. They're reading about their governments. And they have to become masters in this. So if the king asks them a question about their religion or their history, they have to give him an answer. And so these, these men from, from Judah who follow after the Yahweh God, who follow after our God, 
who are from the people of God have said, you have to be, become masters in this culture, in our language, in our gods. The third thing that's expected of them is to eat their foods. So out of those three, being given a new name, having to master their language and culture, and having to eat their foods, which one seems like the big deal? Which one seems like the one that, that is worth fighting back on, that's worth standing up on? To us, the foods one seems like a no, like, well, it's easy, I'll just eat their foods. Like, I think we would want to fight on the name or fight on having to learn the language and culture. But what's interesting is that's not what they fought on. They could have, and again, they had this choice. They could have separated completely. They could have said, no, we're not going to do that. And they probably would have been killed, right? If they said, no, we're not going to do what you tell us to do, they would have been killed. And maybe that would have seemed like the noble thing to do. Maybe they would have been viewed as martyrs back home in Jerusalem, that they stood up to the evil king, said, no, we are not going to do what you tell us to do, and they just got killed. But they don't do that. They take each thing that they're asked, and I think they ask the question of, can we, can we do this? Can we do this by honor, in honoring God? And does God allow us to do this? And when it came to the names, it's a new name. It's signifying something to the Babylonian culture. But it doesn't change who they are. It doesn't change their ability to worship God. So I think they thought, okay, we could do that. Call us a different name, whatever. We still know who we are. We still know who we serve. When it comes to having to study the language and the culture and the religion, again, they didn't say no. They said, okay, we'll study that if you want. We'll become pros. We'll, we'll become maybe the most learned people in all of Babylon about your religion and your culture and your language. When you ask us a question, we'll know the answer better than you know the answer. Because it says they were 10 times better by the end of this. They're 10 times better than everyone else. So they know this stuff front and back. If Nebuchadnezzar asks him a question about Marduk, Daniel knows it. Doesn't mean he believes it, but he knows it. So they do it. And, and, and I think for us today, we can learn the culture. We can be knowledgeable about it. Doesn't mean we believe everything in it. Doesn't mean that we follow everything in it. But there's nothing wrong with having knowledge of it. And I think sometimes you can even use that knowledge, and I, and I think Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego use that knowledge to their benefit as well. And then the third thing is the food. Now, again, to us, we think, like, well, that's not a big deal. But this was the thing, this was what they had to stand up on, because this, out of everything else, this was the thing where they could not honor their God and eat the Babylonians' food, because they had certain religious instructions on how the food had to be prepared. They had to keep like meat and dairy separate. They couldn't eat shellfish. They had all these things. They couldn't eat pigs, obviously. Um, things had to be prepared a certain way. Things couldn't touch. Um, they couldn't eat the Babylonian food because God told them not to eat that food. God told them not to eat that way. So on that issue, they had a, they had a clear instruction. No, we can't. I'm sorry, but we can't do that and be true to our God. We're just gonna, but then, but then they, they said, we'll just eat these vegetables over here, and we'll trust that God is going to make that work. And God did. God made that work. They ate the vegetables. They drank the water. The, the person over them was like, I don't know, man. If, I, if you guys start looking like all wimpy and like pale and not good, and I go to my supervisor, and he's like, hey, these guys over here, like this is probably, let's say there's a couple hundred young men, and he's like, these young men over here are looking good. 
I'll put you in charge of these four guys. They look terrible. What are you doing? He's like, well, they asked to eat vegetables, and so I let them eat vegetables. And then that guy gets killed. Because they're like, why are you listening to them? <laughs> like, just tell them to eat the steak. Like, don't listen to them. Um, but he allows them. It says God gave them favor. He allows them for, I think it was 10 days, um, to eat this way. And at the end of the 10 days, they look excellent. Their skin's healthy. They're looking strong and fit. Now, people today will sometimes do a whole, like, Daniel diet or Daniel fast. And I don't know. That, this is not the point of my sermon. So if you want to do that, that's fine. But... I don't think there's any guarantee in here that you're going to look amazing at the end of this. I think God is doing something special as a favor to them to make this work. I don't think this is a plan that God's laid out for all of us. We don't see this anywhere else in Scripture, that this is some sort of plan that, that warrants God's favor. But God shows grace and favor in this instance. And they look great. What's interesting, then, is at the end of it, it says that the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said, it doesn't say who the they were in that. If it was just them, I almost imagine that they decide, like, it works for them. We're going to have everyone do this. In which case, you can imagine how mad the other young men are that they were eating steak and drinking wine. And now the guard's like, hey, you're all going to eat vegetables and drink water from now on because it worked for these four. And, how, and the bullying they probably had to face after that was probably terrible. Um, but it worked. Now... Again, there's no guarantee that that was going to work. They didn't know. They, they trusted that, that maybe it would work. They trusted that God was going to fi- show them a way. But I don't, I don't think they knew with 100% certainty. We even see later on, not to fast forward to other stories, but like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they don't bow down to the, the big statue, they said, you know, we trust that God's going to save us. But even if he doesn't, this is still what we're going to do. He's still our God. And so I think that there's probably an element of this here. Even if, even if we look terrible after 10 days... This is still what we have to do because this is what God's asked of us. And this is what I want to get to about the projection issue is it's what this story boils down to is simple obedience. They had a choice in all these things. And and it's hard to know always what, what the right choice is, especially when you're in a foreign culture and you're asked to do different things. You're asked to, to maybe study different things or do different things. It's, it's hard to know what the right answer is, but they kept holding it up to, can we do this and still honor God? Can we do this and still honor God? Can we do this and still honor God? And they got to the food. Can we do this and still honor God? And the answer was no. And so they didn't. What they could have thought, and I think it would be easy for them to think this, and I think it's easy for us to think this today, is, well, God ha-, they, they could have thought, God has me here for a purpose, clearly. God put us here to witness to the rest of these Babylonian like people in the, temp- in the palace. The- God put us here because he wants us to be the, the right-hand men of Nebuchadnezzar, and he wants us to be influence- influencers for good and for God. Now, that's actually probably true. That is probably why God had them there. But what they could have done is they could have said, that's, that's the end goal that we need to get to, so we need to do whatever it takes to get there. So if it means, like, eating their food, fine, we'll do that. Because the important thing is not so much this. The important thing is that we get to the seat of influence so that we can be a voice for good. Have you ever heard that reasoning? Have you ever thought through that reasoning before? Where it's okay to maybe slide on these little issues because really the important thing is this. Like, it's okay to maybe slide on these issues because as long as I can just be close to this person and maybe share Jesus with them. Like, it doesn't matter that I slide on these issues over here. 
Because really, the important thing is I'm just sharing Jesus with them, right? Like, these little things don't, aren't, aren't as important. But for them, it, it was that important. And for God, it is that important. And for us, our integrity matters. If Daniel and Hannah and I, I'm just going to call him Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because I'm pretty, pretty sure that's what we're going to call him going forward. But if they would have tried to cut the corner on the food issue, they would not have been honoring God. They would not have been witnesses. They couldn't try to cut that corner and still be witnesses to the Babylonian culture. They would have been dishonoring God and his commandments. And so what we see is they don't do anything spectacular. There's some pretty spectacular things they do later. But even then, if we, if we go through all the stories, so oftentimes what they're doing is simple obedience over and over again throughout the book of Daniel. Now, God does some crazy stuff around them, but really, they're just trying to follow obediently in each story. And it starts here by them just saying, no, sorry, we can't eat that food. And it seems like a little thing, but I'm sure the pressure on them was intense to eat that food. Intense pressure, and they don't. And so for us, the simple things matter. The small things matter. The small things of obedience Telling the truth in little things matters. We can't cut that corner because it'll be easier or because we need to make sure we don't upset this person or whatever. The small steps of obedience are what we can control because otherwise, if we're just trying to think ahead of and trying to force God's hand of, God, this is what you need to do, so I'm going to make sure that I take care of the steps to make God do what he needs to do. I think sometimes we go down that road of trying to make the thing happen, of trying to force God to do the thing that we want to see done, to try to force the results. But what's required of us is not that. It's not to try to force results. It's not to try to solve the problem. It's to do the thing in front of us that's the simple obedience. And Daniel and his friends did that extraordinarily well and are blessed for it. But they may not have been blessed for it. There's stories throughout history of people who did the right thing, who did the obedience, and maybe they were just killed. And so it's not the end result that we're looking for. It's just the fact that God asks something of us and we do it. And then what, what the goal is, is at the end of the day, it's the well done, good, faithful servants. That's the goal that we're after. So as I kind of bring this home to the final point of what God's plans for us is, again, I've already kind of relayed some of the, um, some of the application points, but I want to kind of think through in a little more detail how this relates to our lives, because I think there's tons of ways. And for each of us, we each have a different life and a different story and different things that God has asked of us and put in front of us. And I think it's easy for us to think that, like, well, Daniel was pre-Jesus and pre-cross and pre-empty tomb. We know more today. It's a, little, it's a little easier to know how to navigate the culture today. And to that I say, well, we see Paul in his famous passage in Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 say, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. 
Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And I read that verse just to say, there's some stuff that we don't fully know, that we know in part. And I think that this issue of how we act as Christians in a culture that's not Christian, and increasingly, our culture isn't super Christian. And so how we behave, how we integrate, how we act, how we navigate those channels I don't think it's fully, it's super clear 100% of the time. I think it is one of these issues where we know in part, someday we'll know fully, someday we'll know, but now we know in part, and so we have to navigate this in the meantime, navigate how we're going to live in this culture in a way that honors Christ. And I think for each one of us, God does have a plan. And again, like I said, whatever's going on in the United States or Russia or whatever, China, I think God's doing things at that level, and I, don't, I have no idea what it is. <laughs> That's definitely an issue where we see in part and do not see clearly. But whatever's going on at that level, God cares about us in 2022, each one of us. And he has a plan for each one of us, and he's doing something with each one of us. And you may not know what it is. In fact, you don't know what it is. You don't know what God's doing exactly or where he's going to lead you in this next year. But you have decisions each day in front of you of, am I going to be obedient today with what's in front of me? Am I going to do and live in a way that's honoring Christ with what's in front of me? And I think for young people especially, comparing themselves to Daniel and the other three, it's, we get so fixated on, and I remember doing this when I was young, and I'm sure a lot of us remember this, and some of you young people are in this stage right now, we get fixated on what is the right choice? Am I going to go to the right college? Am I going to choose the right career? Am I going to marry the right person? And it becomes so stressful and fixated on, am I going to do the right thing? Otherwise, am I on some path that's going to displease God and I'm forever lost and hopeless because I chose the wrong thing at this crucial point in my life? That's stressful. We carry a lot of stress about that. And a lot of young people carry a lot of stress about that. Um, And to them, I would say that you don't know exactly what God's doing, (laughs) like all of us. And so I think that like Daniel and Shabbat, Meshach, and Abednego, you hold each thing up. If If I'm doing this choice here, am I dishonoring God? And if not, then I think it's on the table. You can, you can go to that college. Um, is it the right college? I don't know. But as a Christian, you could go there as long as you feel like it's not the choice that's dishonoring God. Um, and you can kind of go through those decisions. And whether you, whether you, at the end of the day, chose the right one or not, you may not know, except that God's sovereign and he's working it all out. So he's going to take care of it. Um, for us who are older, we may not have those major decisions quite as much, but it doesn't get any easier, as we know. We navigate all sorts of difficult decisions of, am I parenting in a way that's honoring Christ? Am I interacting with my spouse in a way that's honoring Christ? Am I going to work and interacting with my coworkers in a way that's honoring Christ? There's not a simple answer to that. There's not a simple like, way to just do X, Y, and Z, and you've, you've nailed it. You have to navigate these things. Now, there's, there's some principles. 
unlike the Old Testament, unlike Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't have as many no's. Like, there are some no's. Like, you shouldn't, like, if, if somehow in your career or in your whatever, in the, in the question that you're answering, considering, like, if it's going to cause you to, like, lie or steal or murder or commit adultery, like, the answer is no. Don't do that. Like, that's easy. So if you're considering, like, one of those, no, that's not the path. Take the other path. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't steal. There are some basic no's. But apart from those basic no's, what we're given is a few yeses. And the yeses that we're told is to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love God with all of our heart, souls, and mind. Now, within those yeses, I think there's a lot of possibilities of how we do those yeses. How do we love the people around us? How do we love our coworkers? How do we love our spouse well? How do we love our children well? There's, there's some open paths there. And it's sometimes hard to know if the path that we're on is the best path, is the most Christ-honoring path. Now, what I want to say to that maybe anxiety that we feel sometimes as Christians of, am I, am I doing this well? Because I think sometimes we ask that, like, am, am, I, am I doing this well, God? <laughs> or am I just messing it up left and right? And I think what we have to face is the same thing that, that God's people have always had to face. It's the same thing that Israelites had to face 2,500 years ago. It's the same thing that Daniel and his friends had to face, that we have to face today, is we're left with obedience today and trusting God with tomorrow. Because what, what happens with our children, what happens with our jobs, what happens with our health, what happens with our marriage, that's in God's hands. There's things we can do, absolutely, to help those things, and God's given us some things we can do, but the end result of those things are in God's hands. We have to trust him with it. We can't carry the weight of anxiety that we have to make something happen, that we have to make a friend of ours come to Christ, that we have to make our children become a certain 25-year-old. We don't have control over that. We don't. But God is overseeing that. I think a verse for us that's helpful in this is what Jesus said himself in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We mess this up so often as Christians, you guys. We live the Christian life with a heavy yoke and a heavy burden. And we look like people who are tired and weary because we're trying to thread the needle of being good Christians in our culture, and it's exhausting because we don't trust that God's in control. And so we're carrying the yoke ourselves. We're carrying the burden ourselves, and that's not what Jesus told us to do. He said, you're weary, lay it down. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I have it in control. This is my kingdom. This is God's kingdom, you guys. This is not our kingdom that we're building. This is God's kingdom that he's building. He's the one who has it under control. We have a part to play. We have obedience to do. We have love that we're supposed to give to one another. But the result of that is not ours. What happens with it? If you keep loving the person next to you, and if they throw that down and, and trample it, that's on them. That's on God. You hand that to God and say, okay, God, I did my part. I did my part to try to love them well. You do with it what you can. <laughs> we do that with our children. 
We do that with our spouse. And I know some of us carry the weight of children who grow up to, as adults and are not on the path that you wish they were on, are not on the path that you would have chosen for them. We have to give all of that to God because it will destroy us. It will tear us apart if we're carrying that yoke because it's not ours to carry. And the same thing was true for the community in exile in Babylon. They had day by day to, to choose obedience, and what ended up happening with that was in God's hands. And we see God even working weird things on Nebuchadnezzar as we go through the book of Daniel. And what happens with that at the end of the day? Like, is Nebuchadnezzar in heaven right now with Jesus? We don't know. Like, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but clearly God was doing something in his life, cared about him, this kind of evil king of this evil empire. God even cared about him. But again, it wasn't Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's job to, to make something happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life. God's the one who's doing that. So, for us, our job is to trust God with the future, to be present, to be obedient, to be loving, to be faithful, to hopefully letting the fruits of the Spirit grow in our lives. And God has it from there. Keep praying, keep reading your Bibles. He is enough to take care of the rest. And if you don't believe that, if you don't really believe that he's enough to take care of the rest. Like I, just, I want you to reflect on that in your life. I want you to, to wrestle with God in that. If there's an area where you're really struggling for control, bring it to him. Lay it down. Because he will handle it so much better than you can. Over and over and over again. Every time we think that we can handle it better than God, we're wrong. We're dumb. We can't. Keep thinking we can. Throughout human history, there's story after story of us thinking that we can. Throughout probably each of our lives, there's story after story of us thinking that we can control it better or do it better or get the results we want better, and we can't. So we just need to learn to knock that off because God can do it way better. Okay? <laughs> and if you don't know, if you don't have God as your king to do this for you, I would invite you to do that because he's the best king and he will take care of the things and not that your life's going to go perfect and not that he's going to make X, Y, and Z happen in the timing or in the manner or in the way that you would choose because he doesn't and those who have been Christians for a long time know that he doesn't. He doesn't just make things happen in the exact timing that we would choose but he's good and he's faithful and he does care for us and he is building something in the end that's going to be wonderful and good and we can trust that. Just as Daniel and his friends trusted that. And again, we see throughout the book of Daniel, this happened over and over again. They keep just trusting that God's going to take care of it, and he does. And he takes care of us today. So as we engage with our culture that maybe looks increasingly like Babylon, we still have a role to play, not to separate entirely, not to assimilate entirely, but to hold each thing up. God, can I do this in a way that's loving? Can I do this in the way that's honoring to you? Um, and then we step out in faith, trusting that he's going to take care of it from there.